Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the Afghanistan Papers, which reveal in stark detail much of what the anti-war movement has known or strongly suspected since the beginning. And frankly, this should be seen as one of the biggest stories of the year, but thanks to the general chaos of Trump and the impeachment process sucking up all the oxygen in the room, the Afghanistan Papers were barely a blip in the news in December, so... Even though interest in the story seems to have already come and gone, I wanted to do my part to keep the story alive. So clips today come from Democracy Now!, On the Media, The Real News Network, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Michael Brooks Show, Eyes Left, and Newsbeat. The modern-day Pentagon Papers, that's how people are describing a confidential trove of documents obtained by the Washington Post, revealing how senior U.S. officials have lied throughout the 18-year U.S. war in Afghanistan, the longest war in U.S. history. The first installation of the explosive report, published Monday, is headlined, At War with the Truth. It documents how U.S. officials repeatedly lied about the war's progress while hiding evidence the war had become unwinnable. It also shows how three successive presidencies, President George W. Bush, President Obama and President Trump, have bungled the war in Afghanistan despite deploying 775,000 U.S. troops since 2001. More than 2,000 U.S. soldiers have died in Afghanistan and 20,000 have been wounded. The papers also reveal how U.S. officials tried to hide the truth about the war from the American public. In one interview revealed in the papers, Douglas Lute, a three-star Army general who served as the White House's Afghan war czar during both Bush and Obama administrations, said, quote, We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, unquote. The 2,000 pages of secret documents contain 400 interviews with generals, diplomats, aid workers, Afghan officials, and others who played a direct role in the war. The Washington Post won access to the documents after a three-year legal battle. On the very same day that the war in Afghanistan began, the spin began too. Ari Fleischer, the president's spokesman, came out in a very terse, direct statement, said we are beginning another front in our war against terrorism so that freedom can prevail over fear. We did not ask for this mission, but we will fulfill it. The name of today's military operation is Enduring Freedom. Freedom? Not really, but Enduring Oh, yeah. The air campaign is in its 20th day today. The bombing campaign is causing more civilian casualties and more public protests. Bush addressed more than 10,000 soldiers at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, home of the 101st Airborne Division. We fight now and we will keep on fighting until our victory is complete. The mission is not only important, it is also achievable. We can and will accomplish this mission. So far, we believe we have been making gradual but important progress. Progress has been made, 
uh, to try to advance uh, security. Secretary Robert Gates says progress in the war with Afghanistan is exceeding his expectation. We can say with confidence that America will complete its mission in Afghanistan, and by the end of next year, our war in Afghanistan will be over. And though premonitions of a Vietnam-like quagmire were voiced early and often, Back in 2001, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld cracked jokes about the very premise. It, it looked like nothing was happening. Indeed, it looked like we were in a, altogether now, quagmire. But as Washington Post investigative reporter Craig Whitlock revealed, a once-secret internal history of the war found that the quagmire was, and is, real. The Afghanistan Papers, as the Post is calling this monumental reporting project, was three years in the making. The project was initiated in the Pentagon by the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, but it took two lawsuits and untold records requests to eventually yield the 2,000 pages that document 400 interviews with generals, diplomats, aid workers, and Afghan officials. And like the Pentagon Papers that 48 years ago laid bare the government's strategic blunders and lies about Vietnam, this federal reporting project reveals the efforts of three administrations over nearly two decades to spin expensive, bloody failure into success. For many years, both under Bush and Obama and somewhat under Trump, the generals would always stick to the same talking points. We're in a tough fight. There are challenges. We don't know how it's going to go exactly, but we're making progress. We're turning the corner. Sometimes it would say we're winning. And that contrasted just 180 degrees from what some of these same people were saying in what we call the Afghanistan Papers. This is Major General Jeffrey Schlosser briefing the press in September 2008 after calling for reinforcements. We are not losing it. The enemy cannot win uh, even given what we have here now. When you said you are not losing, are you saying that you are winning? <laughs> Look, I, you know, the truth is, is that I, I, I feel like, you know, we're making some steady progress. It's a slow win, I guess, is probably uh, what we're accomplishing right on over here. <laughs> Slowly. Slowly. <laughs> it was a laugh line even a decade ago. But if the press was skeptical... Is it fair to say, Craig, that we were institutionally also kind of uncritical in passing these Pollyanna evaluations from the government along? I think the problem is sometimes we would feel obliged to carry along the comments from people like General Schlosser as he said them. Now, usually we would include context. We would note that at the time General Schlosser was saying this, that U.S. troops were suffering a lot of casualties, that field commanders were asking for reinforcements, that bombings by the Taliban were on the increase. So I think the news media in Afghanistan and covering the Pentagon did a faithful job in chronicling the setbacks and the failures and the problems. What I think, again, is different about these Afghanistan papers is it's the people who were responsible for the policy. Finally, we're getting admission from people in charge that all those things they said all along weren't true. It seems like one of the complications was that success was a moving target. Were we there to eradicate al-Qaeda? Were we there to rout the Taliban? 
to build security infrastructure, to build democratic institutions, to fight corruption, to empower tribal leaders, to build physical infrastructure like roads and schools, encourage women's rights, wipe out the opium trade, win hearts and minds of the Afghan populace. Not so much mission creep, but like 10 different missions, some mutually exclusive. Well, that's right. Back in 2001, there was enormous public support for President Bush's decision to retaliate for 911 and to extinguish the al-Qaeda threat as best we could. That mission was largely accomplished within six months in Afghanistan. But we stayed, and that's when things started to go awry. The people who were in charge of the war, in charge of the policy, admit that we lost our way. How would we know when we accomplished all these other objectives? They last forever. We're never going to turn Afghanistan into Switzerland. There's no doubt that women are treated very poorly in Afghanistan, but that wasn't why we originally sent troops. And it's not realistic to say we're going to have a victory against the Taliban. How many lives and how much treasure have been expended in 19 years tilting at these nine or 10 windmills? 2,300 U.S. military personnel have been killed in Afghanistan, more than 20,000 wounded, more than 3,000 U.S. defense contractors have been killed, about 1,500 NATO and coalition troops have lost their lives. The Afghans have taken by far the biggest brunt of this war. 50,000, 60,000 Afghan security forces have lost their lives. The casualty numbers for the Afghan army and police are so high that the government keeps that number classified. They're worried it would be so demoralizing if they put the true numbers out. But the best estimates are that more than 160,000 people have lost their lives since 2001 due to the fighting in Afghanistan. For only a trillion dollars or more. Or more is probably more accurate. The best estimates we've spent close to a trillion dollars on the military operations and trying to rebuild Afghanistan. Those don't take into account the indirect costs, such as VA care for our troops who came back wounded. And since there's more than 20,000 of those, we're going to be caring for those people for many, many years. The cost of the interest we had to take on the debt, the cost of intelligence operations, all these things, it's really hard to add up. But at a minimum, we've spent a trillion dollars, but the real costs are going to be many times that. We didn't just go in there killing people, although we killed a lot of people. Uh, we poured a lot of cash into Afghanistan, spread it out among tribal leaders and various kinds of infrastructure programs and government agencies. And it had the effect of taking the smoldering embers of the corrupt culture and turning it into like a 70-alarm blaze. It did over time. President Bush tried very hard to get the United Nations and other allies to take on the task of trying to build up Afghanistan. That didn't work very well. So after a few years, the Bush administration started spending some more money because they realized that Afghanistan was such a fragile state that the Taliban could come back and take power again. And then when President Obama took office, he took the complete opposite approach of Bush, which was we need to get the population on the side of this nascent Afghan government. So we're going to spend 
out the wazoo, forgive my description, people in these interviews we obtained said people back in Washington didn't care what they were spending it on as long as they could show that they had spent it. A congressional delegation came to Afghanistan and was asking, how were they doing with these rebuilding projects? There was one military officer who said to the congressman, you're asking me to spend $3 million a day in this Afghan district the size of a U.S. county. Could you do this at home? And the congressman said, no, of course not. And he says, well, you're asking me to do this in a place with mud huts and no windows. Afghanistan was never a place that had a clean, well-run government. But now with these billions and billions of dollars flowing in, the opportunities for corruption were unavoidable. So all this makes me think about the Pentagon Papers, the lies we were told back in the 60s that led us to the Vietnam War, that exploded this war, that affected all of our lives, the same lies are being told now. It's the overwhelming nature of how this establishment lies to us, the military lies to us, about these wars that were never declared. And then your piece was so also so deeply personal because of the way the situation you were put in, in Afghanistan itself. So how do you tie these things together for us? Well, you know, I had a sense... Um, just doing my duty, just day to day, the absurdity of, you know, democracy building in uh, a portion of rural Afghanistan where we literally only controlled the ground we stood on. So we're talking about like a Vietnam scenario. I mean, uh, my little outpost, which I commanded, uh, we were basically under siege. Sometimes we were under attack within 50 meters of the gate. In fact, one time I jumped into a canal uh, right next to my gate. That's how close we were to fire. But trying to build democracy or a nation build or protect women's rights in an area like that, something felt wrong. There was something viscerally wrong with it. So, you know, as I read these reports, um, after five years of writing about this war, lots of research, lots of reading, plus my own experiences, you know, I allowed myself the guilty pleasure for a moment to feel vindicated, but that only lasted a few seconds. And, and, and really since then, I'd have to say that uh, as a historian and a, and a writer, I'm not surprised. Uh, and as a, a former soldier, I'm mostly saddened by these reports. I mean, a, a, any war is held, but the fact that almost every war we have fought, every war this country has fought since World War II has not been declared. They've been just done. Well, uh, that's just it. I mean, Congress has, you know, completely turned its back, you know, has been asleep on duty uh, for their constitutional obligation to sanction war. Uh, and they just haven't done it. I mean, we're still using uh, the September 14th, 2001 authorization for military force that allowed the Bush administration to go after al-Qaeda. I mean, al-Qaeda has essentially been gone from Afghanistan in any meaningful way since February of 2002, at the latest. So what are we doing now? How in the world can, you know, three successive presidents, you know, a Republican, a Democrat, and then whatever the heck Trump is, how could three successive administrations still say that the reason we're in Afghanistan, the reason young men and women are dying is because of an al-Qaeda-based authorization for force that was signed while the World Trade Center was still smoldering? This is, this is a farce, and it always has been. So let's take a look at this one piece from the Washington Post reporter talking to the inspector general. And the Washington Post reporter quotes Douglas Lute, who's a three-star army general who served in the White House uh, for both Bush and Obama overseeing the Afghan war. One of the most sobering things to read for me was just how many people involved in the war 
were very blunt and candid that the strategy, the war strategy under Obama and Bush and Trump, they all said it was worthless. Doug Lute, General Lute, who is the Afghan war czar in the White House for two administrations, Bush and Obama. So this guy was, from the White House perspective, overseeing the war. And he's saying things like, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. He said, I bumped into an even more fundamental lack of knowledge. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. These are the people in charge of the war, essentially saying it was a disaster, and they knew it. But I don't see any of these comments in your lessons learned report. As an inspector general, I don't do policy. What all you quoted were people talking about a bad policy. That's the whole fundamental reason questioning why the United States is there. How could you let that drop? Well, we didn't let it drop. I mean, the stuff is available. We're still producing these reports. We just sued you twice to get our hands on it. You know, when you have the man who was running this war for two presidents in the White House saying what he's saying now, Push, and also have what the, had this inspector general had very little to say. I mean, how do you justify that? How do you justify men who put other men and women in, the, in danger and also destroy an entire nation? Well, you know, I respect what Loot had to say. I mean, I respect his candor, but, you know, let's remember something. Um, Loot was a retired three-star general. This is not exactly a dovish peace activist, right? And, <laughs> and, 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 and he probably had more continuity in that war, overseeing that war, than almost anybody. But... It was as recent as 2015 that he said, we don't have the foggiest idea what we're doing. That was when he gave that interview. And so my question becomes, well, if you knew that at the time, if you knew that late in the Obama administration or even earlier, I presume, why didn't you go public? Why didn't you resign? You have a three-star general's pension. Uh, You probably uh, have plenty of opportunity to earn in the Beltway with all of your experience. Why did not a single member of, you know, the 460 some odd generals and officials who gave these interviews, why did not a single one of them put their stars on the table and say no more? Because if, if Luke gave that interview in 2015, which is what I believe I read this morning, then more than 100, at least more than 100 Americans, to say nothing of Afghans, uh, has died since that point in the war. And, and, and that's just disgraceful. I'm glad the Post put out these reports. Um, I think it's important. But I'm also very disturbed by the senior leadership, both within my institution, the U.S. military, and within the national security structure more generally. This is a failure of leadership. And there, and here's the thing. There probably won't be any accountability. If the CIA torture report, if any of these other, if the 9-11 commission report, if any of these, you know, previous, you know, disclosures are any model or any judge, there probably won't be any accountability, but there should be massive accountability. I mean, mass firing. So we can get into that uh, if you'd like. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's cause it, it's, it's mind boggling in many ways, how, no how this kind of fell out. And I, I want to get into what you just said, but let's, let's watch this piece now, I think, because it goes directly to this piece about what the generals did and what they didn't do and the coded language that they used. There's a clear pattern that what was said in private in these interviews contrasted so greatly with what U.S. officials, presidents, members of Congress, military commanders, 
what they had been saying in public over 18 years. Usually the talking points were all pretty similar. They would say the wars, it's a tough place. Conditions that are very trying. It was a tough year. Afghanistan, there's still fighting going on. Increase in Taliban violence. A higher level of violence. But we're making progress. 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 Significant progress. You know, we're going in the right direction. We are on the right road. In the right direction. Our strategy is sound. I think it's important to understand that we do have a strategy that's quite broad. Our strategy is succeeding. So in some ways, Dan, this goes to the heart of what you and I were talking about just before we went on the air together, which was that how these generals have just lied to the American people completely and been part and parcel of the lies to the American public, and especially the ones who are in control now and people like General Petraeus. Well, yeah, we need to talk about that. I mean, that little clip you showed... Was, was really demonstrative, okay? Uh, the military loves words like turn the corner, light at the end of the tunnel. Those are Vietnam words. Progress, uh, glide path. Those are the more millennial era global war on terror terrorists. But they're the same thing, right? But what we found out in the report is that many of the same people who you had on video right there, who the Post had on video uh, saying progress, 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 despite tough fighting and whatever other euphemisms, privately were saying that they knew all along it wasn't working. Okay, so that tells us that we have a national security structure that for maybe 19 years, going on 19 years now, has been lying to our faces. And in some cases, guys who were not necessarily quoted very in-depth in the Washington uh, Post report so far, take Mark Milley. Mark Milley was chairman uh, of, was Army Chief of Staff, and now he's chairman of the Joint Chief. Well, just a few years ago, he gave a glowing evaluation of how well the war was going. And within this very year, he said that it would be premature to leave and that you know, this is not the time to talk about leaving Afghanistan. Now, that tells me uh, one of two things, and I'm not sure which is worse. Either uh, he is incompetent because he can't read the writing on the wall that the other 459 officials saw, which is that all the stats, uh, all the measurable uh, you know, waypoints are going in a negative direction, or he's a liar, right? Or he's willing to obfuscate and mislead and, and provide a, an illusion to the American people. Um, he should be fired immediately uh, on either case, but I wouldn't expect that to happen. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. With me now is Craig Whitlock, Washington Post investigative reporter who brought these papers to light. Are these the Pentagon Papers of our time? Do you like that nickname? 
Well, I'm always careful, but there certainly are some strong similarities as well as some differences. Both the Pentagon Papers and the Afghanistan Papers, um, they are sort of a secret history of the war. In the Pentagon Papers case, they literally were a top secret history of the war commissioned by uh, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. Those papers were all based on internal government documents, memos, intelligence reports, things like that. With the Afghanistan papers, these are only interviews with people who are involved in the war. So the difference here is you have a real human voice, the frustrations, even the anger of people involved in the war, speaking quite frankly about what went wrong. Uh, and But both of them, the Pentagon Papers and the Afghanistan Papers, make clear that the public was misled about progress in the war or lack thereof in Vietnam and Afghanistan, and with the Afghanistan Papers in particularly raw terms. The interviews you acquired, for example, show government official after government official, people who designed the war, critiquing its very existence and questioning strategy, like one government official high up in the war effort told interviewers, if there was ever an example of mission creep, it's in, it's in Afghanistan. Um, can you talk about that quote, mission creep in what way? So th- that official was Richard Boucher, former State Department official. He was uh, for years the official pen- uh, State Department spokesman to the public, but he also served as the top diplomat for South Asia under President Bush. What he's talking about mission creep, and others echo this in the Afghanistan papers, is when we first went to war in Afghanistan in 2001, uh, the reason was pretty clear to everyone. It was to retaliate for 9-1-1, to find Osama bin Laden, and to retaliate against al-Qaeda. Uh, but within six months, uh, most of those goals had been accomplished in Afghanistan. The Taliban was toppled from power. Uh, Af- Al-Qaeda's leaders were either killed, captured, or in hiding or had fled Afghanistan like bin Laden did. So the objectives were accomplished early on. And after that, uh, the mission changed. It became unclear. Were we fighting to uh, turn Afghanistan into a modern country? Was it a war against remnants of the Taliban? Was it a regional strategy to secure nuclear weapons in Pakistan? You know, everybody had their own idea about what the purpose should be. But initially it was clear. But after 2002, it became quite muddy and ever since has gotten even murkier. Another example, a secondary trove of documents you obtained are from former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, his personal notes about the war. In 2003, he wrote, quote, I have no visibility into who the bad guys are. We are woefully deficient in human intelligence, unquote. So how widespread is this notion of what are we fighting for among the people who designed the war and perpetuated the effort? Well, very widespread. And what was almost spooky reading these documents is to hear the same language time and again up and down the chain of command. So you mentioned there Rumsfeld, the defense secretary, saying, I don't have any visibility into who the bad guys are. Uh, there were other interviews, including one with a special forces advisor, a combat advisor to a special forces team in Afghanistan. He said he arrived on the scene and the special forces unit kept asking him, but where are the bad guys? Where are the bad guys? And the advisor said they kept thinking I would be able to tell them who the good guys and bad guys were, and I couldn't tell them. I, you know, I had to make clear to them we, I don't know. So both Rumsfeld at the highest level of the Pentagon and people in the field couldn't tell who the enemy was, and I mean that's kind of startling. But 
that kind of sums things up. We didn't really know who we were fighting. And if you don't know who you're fighting in a war, you're, you're in real trouble. A through line of this reporting seems to be what officials were saying behind closed doors versus in public. For example, Bob Crowley, an Army colonel who served as a senior counterinsurgency advisor to U.S. military commanders in 2013 and 2014, told government interviewers, quote, every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right and we became a self-licking ice cream cone, unquote. What a quote. What are some examples of when damning data was skewed for public consumption? So there was another interview with the National Security Council official, a senior official at the White House, who said in this government interview that, uh, they they were always trying to massage what they called the metrics, the measurements of how the war were going. And they would spin it no matter what to make it look like the war was going well. And one example of this is uh, during the, the surge of troops during President Obama's first term in office, uh, if there were increases in U.S. casualties, uh, both commanders in the war zone and officials back at the White House would turn this around as an indicator that, well, we're taking the fight to the enemy. That's why more U.S. troops are dying. Uh, and conversely, uh, if casualties were down, they would also take that as a sign of, of success. See, you know, the violence levels are decreasing. So no matter which way things were going, they would use as an indicator that the war was going well. I'm going to play a clip. Um, you asked Special Inspector General John Sopko, the head of the federal agency that conducted the interviews, why he didn't include many of these damning interviews that you've now reported in his public report, and here's what he had to say. These are the people in charge of the war, essentially saying it was a disaster, and they knew it. But I don't see any of these comments in your lessons learned reports. Why, why didn't you include those? And, and, and that is sort of the limitation of where we go. See, as an inspector general, I don't do policy. What all you quoted were people talking about a bad policy. So, why did your staff interview all these people I just quoted if, if they aren't because going to be used? At, at, Oh, they may well be used. But I they mean, weren't. We're, None of those people. Not up to now. But that's the whole fundamental reason questioning why the well, United States is there. How could you let that drop? Well, well, we didn't let it drop. I mean, the stuff is available. We're still producing these reports. We just so, sued you twice to get our hands on it. I, I don't know if quoting General Lute saying that we screwed up or we didn't have the plan, would be any more useful than the audits and investigations and other reports that we have, which make the same point. You don't think Everything. that would be more useful than the White House war czar who admitted they had no idea what we were doing in Afghanistan, it, it, and you don't think that would be useful it, to tell that to the public? It, it, in my humble opinion, no. Whoa. So that's our guest, um, Washington Post investigative reporter Craig Whitlock questioning the uh, Inspector General, John Sopko, the head of the federal agency that conducted all these internal interviews on Afghanistan. And wh wow, what are you thinking as you hear that back? 
Well, you can hear me get a little worked up uh, in my questioning, but uh, you know, I think most people can understand how could they sit on this material, uh, and it isn't just anybody making these comments about how the war was screwed up and they didn't have a strategy. These were the many of them were the people in charge. I mean, you quoted a few of them, but you know, there's a couple others. There was a general uh, David Richards, a British general who was a commander of all NATO troops in 2006, 2007, and he gave an interview, you know, very bluntly saying. You know, we were trying to get a single coherent long-term approach, a proper strategy, but instead we got a lot of tactics. There was no coherent long-term strategy. And then his successor, uh, who was an, uh, an American Army general, uh, Dan McNeil, in 2007, he came back and he said, I tried to get someone to define for me what winning meant even before I went over, and nobody could. Nobody would give me a good definition of what it meant. Uh, he said there was no campaign plan, a lot of verbiage and talk, but no plan. So these are the generals in charge of the war. I can't think of another war in the past, you know, umpteen years where you have the generals, the commanders admitting that they, they didn't have a plan. They didn't have a strategy. And it's general after general, ambassador after ambassador, aid worker after aid worker saying the same thing. Alice in New Paltz, you're on WNYC. Thank you so much for calling in. Hi, Alice. Hey, um, I was wondering uh, what role the military-industrial complex plays in the Afghanistan papers and in the way that, you know, we remained in Afghanistan even after our goals had kind of been accomplished there. Um, and if you think that, like, these papers are going to shed light on that, yeah. Great question. Craig? So the Afghanistan papers don't, quote unquote, uh, look into the military industrial complex, but they do examine uh, some aspects of what I think Alice is referring to. One is, you know, why did we stay there? Why do we keep fighting this war after 2002 when our initial goals have been accomplished? And, you know, that is a really good question. I, I think the generals and the White House during the Bush administration, frankly, lost, lost track of what was going on. They were so focused on Iraq starting in 2002 2003. And one document we got kind of really is a good example of this. This was one of Donald Rumsfeld's memos. And he talks about going to the White House and meeting with George Bush in October 2002. And he said he, he met with the president, told Bush that he wanted to set up a meeting with General Tommy Franks, who is the general in charge of U.S. Central Command and Iraq and the Middle East. And he said, I also want you to meet with, with General McNeil. And according to Rumsfeld's memo, which was written to himself, uh, Bush said, well, who's General McNeil? And Rumsfeld said, well, he's the general in charge of Afghanistan. And Bush replied, well, I don't need to meet with him. Right. So here you have President Bush doesn't even know the name of his commander in Afghanistan. And once Rumsfeld said, I want you to, you know, would you like to meet with him to talk about the war? Bush said, I don't need to meet with him. And I think that kind of sums things up. He was so focused on Iraq that he was completely you know, out of touch with what was going on in Afghanistan. And that went on for a number of years. Throughout the entire Bush-Obama and Trump eras, there has been systemic lying and disinformation on the part of the U.S. government and different administrations on what exactly is happening in Afghanistan. Multiple shifting rationales for why we're there, 
uh, constant efforts to spin and formulate uh, uh, successes that are non-existing. Uh, and basically, you have a war now that's longer than Vietnam. I believe Afghanistan is the longest ongoing war in U.S. history that has consumed an incredible amount of lives, U.S. soldiers, endless Afghani civilians, where you are in a situation where basically the Ashraf Ghani government controls about half of the country. The rest is by various factions of the Taliban. This has deepened and created all sorts of new problems in terms of the U.S. and Pakistani relationship. It has been a boon in some respects for the Pakistani intelligence services, ISI, who play a double game with the CIA and the Taliban. Everybody should read Steve Call's Directorate S book. It's also had an enormously damaging effect on Central Asia and on Pakistan. Uh, the war, of course, has been conducted most aggressively under Obama with the drone program in Pakistan that killed a significant amount of Pakistani civilians and caused a new layer of instability there. We don't know the exact amount of civilians because the drone program civilian casualty rates have never been properly measured. But we do know that all civilian casualty rates are skyrocketing under Trump. I'm going to quote a little bit from Juan Cole, who wrote a great piece um, we didn't need documents. America's trillion dollar failure in the Afghanistan war has been obvious all along. Um, basically, a lot of reporting of Whitlock's articles focused on U.S. government lies and misrepresentations about so-called progress on the war front. But this was all long obvious to anyone who knows anything serious about Afghanistan and Pakistan. Our Madison Avenue advertising culture gives the U.S. government the tools to pull the wools over people's heads. Government spokesmen in the forever wars have just two categories, progress and slow progress. In a, a epochal disaster, like losing a whole province is slower progress than we would like. Um, and he goes on to just talk about the various massive blunders here. Let's go through a little bit of like uh, of, of history here. This is George W. Bush. Remember after September 11th, this goes back to the 1980s. This goes, all of these relationships were formed during the U S Saudi and Pakistani support of the Mujahideen fight against the Soviet union. Then their Afghanistan is, a, is abandoned. It's multi-warlord factions. The Taliban rise in the mid-90s. And initially, there's actually some really positive overtures with the United States because there's pipeline deals to be had. Osama bin Laden is there. They're hosting him in Al-Qaeda, and he's got a huge amount of money to dispense. And still, almost certainly, different links to various parts of the Saudis. So this is George W. Bush after September 11th. There's, of course, not going to be any strategic response. There's not going to be any humane response. There's going to be a massive bombing and onslaught against Afghanistan. And really importantly, this whole war on terrorism framework, even though we don't use that language anymore, is still 20 years later how we conduct all of our global military policy. This is still the framework upon a AUMF, which has never been reformed. There was just a massive military spending bill that, of course, the Democrats totally rolled on that given to all Saudi demands on their genocide in Yemen that would allow the Trump administration to use AMF, uh, AUMF uh, money and authority to attack Iran and does nothing uh, to hold any of this back. This is George W. Bush launching it back 
after the September 11th attacks, several weeks after. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Now, this went on for multiple years, and after initially uh, sort of claiming success by essentially putting the Northern Alliance into power, dispersing the Taliban and al-Qaeda, and again, uh, a, a huge amount of civilian casualties, loss of U.S. life, um, Afghanistan just kept going and going, and it was not successful. In fact, it was destabilizing Pakistan. Uh, there was all sorts of, uh, you know, not all sorts of reporting, it was still pretty underreported then of problems in the Karzai government. Then Barack Obama comes along and he's not an anti-war candidate. He's an anti-dumb war candidate. So the invasion of Iraq is dumb and not intelligent, not a war crime. And we need to focus on the smart war in Afghanistan, which is pretty clear to anybody uh, very early on uh, with any historical awareness is unwinnable. But Obama still makes a Machiavellian calculation to surge troops in Afghanistan uh, under military pressure and with political calculation. This review is now complete. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. I do not make this decision lightly. I oppose the war in Iraq precisely because I believe that we must exercise restraint in the use of military force and always consider the long-term consequences of our actions. We have been at war now for eight years, at enormous cost in lives and resources. Years of debate over Iraq and terrorism have left our unity on national security issues in tatters and created a highly polarized and partisan backdrop for this effort. And having just experienced the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the American people are understandably focused on rebuilding our economy and putting people to work here at home. Now, Obama would actually make an, a very odd play, which is he would promise to pull those troops out after 18 months of going in. And then you heard a lot in this time period with General McChrystal and General Petraeus, basically about replicating what they did in Iraq, which was sold as a surge that was effective. But really what it was, was going to Sunni leadership across the country and saying, look, we're going to protect some of your rights economically and otherwise, and here are bags of cash, which was much more persuasive than the surge, but not replicatable in Afghanistan for a variety of reasons, including a huge amount of broader, just sort of political illiteracy about even just as an example, the different ethnic factions inside the Afghan context. It continues on. We're rolling right through, including of course, an accelerated drone warfare and the relationship of Pakistan. And then this guy became president. Well, thank you very much, Mr. President. 52 compared to thousands, and uh, we're doing 
a tremendous job. And as you know, a big part of that job is ISIS, certainly the biggest, and Al-Qaeda. And we, uh, we've got them down very low numbers. We'll have that totally taken care of in a very short period of time. And we'll see what happens. Uh, the Taliban wants to make a deal. We'll see if they want to make a deal. It's got to be a real deal, but we'll see. But they want to make a deal. And they only want to make a deal because you're doing a great job. That's the only reason they want to make a deal. So I want to thank you, and I want to thank the Afghan soldiers for really uh, I've spoken to a lot of you today, and you say they're really fighting hard. I was very impressed with that, actually. So I want to thank you. So that's Donald Trump, who, of course, in the first couple of uh, months in his administration, authorized an operation uh, that killed uh, multiple civilians right out of the gate uh, when he became president and then also uh, dropped a massive payload bomb in Afghanistan in 2017. That was just mother of all bombs, mother of all bombs. That's only because they don't have a father of all bombs. (laughs) Right. And then uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, the ultra hawk, has been saying, according to Indian media reports, that this could all end if the Pakistanis would just stop supporting the Taliban, which is basically like saying, like, yes, this could all end if we had immediate world peace or if the United States stopped supporting the intelligence services in Pakistan that support the Taliban. These things are Slightly complicated, unfortunately, and there's a nexus of relationships that don't work for anybody. Three months ago, negotiations with the Taliban were canceled, and they are resuming again as of yesterday. Talks between the United States and the Taliban resumed this weekend, three weeks after President Donald Trump abruptly canceled negotiations aimed at ending America's longest war. News of the, of the talks came just before the Washington Post obtained a report of more than 2,000 pages of government documents. That's, they say it shows how U.S. officials for years have misled the public about the war in Afghanistan. And uh, NBC News has contacted the White House, State Department, and Pentagon for comment. And the U.S. Taliban talks have restarted in the Qatari capital of Doha on Saturday with the goal of reducing violence and the laying groundwork of the peace talks between the Taliban and Afghan government, a State Department spokesperson told NBC News. Now, could you have going back to 2001 have isolated more extreme versions of the Taliban and gotten them to give up Osama bin Laden? Definitely, possibly. Could you have done surgical and precise operations against a discrete security threat instead of a massive global war regime that has cost millions of people's lives and wasted a huge amount of money and had a global rise in surveillance? Yes, you could have. And this all goes back to the ahistorosity and, if that's even a word, an insane warmongering that happened after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. And we're still there. Like, it's like background noise. Like, oh, yeah, we just killed a wedding party. The Afghanistan war has been a struggle, like, within the anti-war movement also. Um, You know, like, from my perspective, having come into the anti-war movement under Bush, where the focus was on the Iraq war, and there were really massive mobilizations around the Iraq war, Afghanistan, of course, was always like part of that larger context. But 
you know, it was kind of overshadowed because under Bush, like U.S. casualties, civilian casualties in Afghanistan were just so small in comparison to the Iraq war. I mean, it, the Iraq war had just gotten so bloody at that point uh, on, on both sides um, that that kind of like consumed all of the focus. But then when it entered into like the phase of like really having to address the Afghanistan war, uh, there is like a major internal debate within the anti-war movement, within the veterans movement. Um, it had this, it still had this like idea that it was like the right war or the so-called good war. Um, you know, and that's, like I said earlier, that's like what Obama campaigned on. He's like, Iraq is the bad war. Afghanistan is the good war. It's the right war. We were attacked on 9-11. And this war is about like uh, revenge and prevention of something like this uh, ever happening again. So I did see it like tear apart the anti-war movement in a lot of ways. Um, you know, during even like the, uh, you know, through the era of like Iraq veterans against the war, I mean, it was called Iraq veterans against the war. Like it wasn't called Iraq and Afghanistan veterans against the war. And there's a long, there's a long running debate inside the organization. We have to add Afghanistan to the name. Should we start a different organization called Afghanistan veterans against the war and have it be a partner organization? And it was like a debate that went on for years and was never really uh, fully resolved. I mean, I think the name change recently to about face kind of tries to address yeah. that, that there's other conflicts people are going to want to like basically like the post 9-11 generation veterans or whatever but it was a major debate and i mean i saw even it tear apart of uh, that organization for for a, a, a part where there were like more conservative veterans who were joining who were right. uh, singularly opposed to the iraq war and thought and had a, kind of obama's position is we need to end the war in iraq so we can fight the war in afghanistan and so it was of course a difficult thing to grapple with and a mass movement um it led to a lot of of uh, internal struggle and debate an open struggle and debate within the movement while the debate was going on in IVW about whether or not to take up Afghanistan. It, the solution that they found for a while was just to produce a shirt. You know how there's a shirt of Iraq veterans against the war. Sure. They produced a shirt that said Afghanistan veterans against the war, but in small print above it, I know some. So it said, I know some Afghanistan veterans against the war. <laughs> so it was like not as controversial. It's like, I'm not saying I'm an Afghanistan veteran against the war. I'm saying I know some Afghanistan veterans who are against wow. the war. Because there was like so much pressure at that time. So like that was like the way to be safe about talking about the issue. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it, again, that's why it's... Again, we, we when I say all of this needs to be thought through critically and we need to very, very much take our time with how we approach these matters. I mean, this is a, a great example of that, because even the mantle, <clears throat> the mantle of being anti-war mm -hmm. uh, becomes contested in, in such a fashion, wherein you have even under the, the umbrella again of the anti-war movement, those who actually are just in a sense, recapitulating the imperialist strategy uh, arguments um, rather than Afghanistan and Iraq both being immoral and un unjust uh, and, you know, repugnant to anyone who has a semblance of a conscience. They allowed Afghanistan to be framed as somehow the better war, the smarter war, the one that made sense. And of course, if you truly are anti-war, uh, morally and ethically, then Afghanistan is without question a war that needs to be opposed uh, assiduously and with great energy. Uh, and that's really, I mean, that's the bottom line on all of this. I mean, there is no place for an imperialist military force such as the U.S.'s to be interfering in the affairs of other countries from any any position of uh, moral or ethical 
uh, certainty. And really, I can't emphasize enough how electing Bernie Sanders might be one small tep- step towards completely dismantling this ongoing uh, military just uh, institution, this military industrial complex mm-hmm. that allows the perpetuation of violence in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere to the benefit of a very small portion of not only the U.S. population, but the entire world's population. As you know, as Bernie said many times, I mean, it's, it's a fraction uh, of the 1% at this point that constitutes the true um, brokers of power. That's right. And, you know, just one more anecdote from the, the era we went through the Afghanistan war and the anti-war movement. Like, you know, I remember like um, when Obama was running like mass anti-war demonstrations, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I started to notice people would start bringing Obama signs to the anti-war protest. Yeah. So, of course, there was a lot of well-meaning people in the anti-war movement who kind of bought Obama's like rhetoric, but also the kind of perspective of what it means to be anti-war. And I think that that's what's important for people kind of in the broader sense to take away is you know, and and no, none of the Democratic candidates are are perfect on this. Um, most of them are completely bad on it. But there's a big difference between being anti-war and kind of having an actual understanding and being anti-imperialist. Right. And I think that the, the Afghanistan for Afghanistan to kind of be considered maybe the good war or the right war by people who are well-meaning anti-war people who oppose the Iraq war for all the right reasons, but saw the rationale from the government about the Afghanistan war. I mean, understanding it, uh, you know, anti, we're not anti-imperialists for the sake of like pacifism or like not using violence. It's like an understanding of the economic stage that capitalism is in. Imperialism is a stage of capitalist development, of advanced capitalism when it's expanded as far as it can expand within its own borders and must expand out competing with other imperialist powers, uh, capturing colonized and formerly colonized places so they can continue to expand profits because capitalism is about constantly expanding profits or you collapse. And so when you've expanded profits as much as you can, you have to use the military to expand profits uh, further to get new markets, new resources and things like that. That's imperialism. And if you understand imperialism, you understand that no U.S. action or war or occupation or anything is good. It's all imperialist. It's all for that that goal. So no matter how good the rationale sounds or how just the rationale sounds, um, it, it serves that that purpose. And so that's what we have to hold our politicians feet to the fire on. It's like we have to create that pressure from below. Right. Um, well, of course, I think, you know, Sanders is far and away the best foreign policy candidate. He needs to be pushed on so many of these things also. And sure. we can't create that pressure without a real understanding of what what imperialism is. And so it's not so much it's not just about, you know, condemning a particular war, but putting it within that larger framework of what all what the whole of US foreign policy is about. And so I think we have a big a big task ahead of us now. I mean, I think that the like I said in the beginning, the Afghanistan papers are explosive. It's a bombshell. It blows the lid off the entire sham of the war. It could be the nail in the coffin for this entire thing. Finally stop the bloodletting finally let the Afghanistan people uh, chart their own path. But it, the nail the nail's not going to hammer itself in on its own. It, the nail has to be hammered in the coffin by a, a grassroots independent movement. This is a big, it will only remain to be a big and explosive story and something that can end the war if, if we're the ones that make it that.
Joining us to discuss the Afghan papers and what this all means is Stephen Miles, Executive Director of Win Without War, which advocates for a more peaceful, progressive foreign policy. Stephen, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So, Stephen, I want to put this into perspective. The Afghan war is the longest such conflict in American history, yet government officials have rarely, if ever, said it was failing. So how does this reporting jive with public comments made by U.S. generals and senior government officials about the war? First of all, I'm glad you're doing the show. I think not enough attention has been paid to this issue. Uh, and I think the the shocking and damning thing of the reporting is is what you just alluded to. The private conversations and the private thoughts of these government officials were completely at odds with what they said publicly. While in public, they were saying, we're making progress, we're turning over a new leaf, we're on our on the verge of victory. Uh, behind closed doors, uh, they were admitting they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know who the enemy was. The war wasn't working, uh, and there was no sign that there was anything that was going to change. Thanks, Stephen. Now, I'm going to read one of the more revelatory and damning sections from the Washington Post report. It states, quote, several of those interviewed described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. They said it was common at military headquarters in Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear the United States was winning the war when that was not the case, end quote. What's your reaction, and should anyone be held responsible for intentionally misleading the public and perhaps even members of Congress? Well, first, it's it's hard to hear those words. Uh, I think we need to recognize that there are men and women in uniform who are not with us today because those words were said not in public but in private. Uh, I think it's it's hard because we know that there are countless Afghan lives that have been lost and forever changed because of the lies that were said. And I think we need to be honest that these were lies. They were public lies to distort the truth and to prevent a change of policy. Absolutely, people need to be held to account for that. I, I think you know one thing one thing that's often lost here uh, through this time is that it wasn't as if no one was saying these things. There were advocates like us. There was others on the outside. There was brave uh, folks who who resigned in protest. I, I think of Matthew Ho, uh, who resigned from the State Department over Afghanistan. Uh, I think of Danny Davis, who who was in active duty and came back from Afghanistan and said, we are not being honest with the American public. And every time the policy tried to change, these lies would would come out stronger. They would take new force. Congress would be on the verge of doing something to end this war, to bring our troops home, to force a settlement for peace. And instead, they would get talked down by the administration and by military leaders who knew what they were saying was untrue, but nonetheless said, no, no, don't pull the rug out from under us. We're so close. We're turning the page. There's going to be victory. They were lying. And the result is years and years of war that didn't have to happen years and years of war that cost lives, that cost this country hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions over the over the course of the war. People need to be held to account for that. And I think one of the things that we see is when they're not held to account, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about the disillusionment with Washington, the kind of the, the reality of how that fueled the rise of Trump and these sorts of things. Well, when folks see no accountability for the lies, not only with this floor, but the lies that got us into Iraq and other conflicts over the last two decades, you can understand why people feel disillusioned. Yeah. And uh, one of the other stunning acknowledgments from my perspective was uh, from Ryan Crocker, who was the veteran diplomat who served as U.S. ambassador uh, a half dozen times, including in Afghanistan during the period of 2011 to 2012. During one of his interviews for this project that the Post is reporting on, 
He said that the single most successful project, ironically, and I guess inadvertently, was the development of mass corruption inside Afghanistan, which sort of, I guess, undercut efforts at building a trustworthy system of government. Uh, so if senior officials were aware a decade into the war that it was largely failing, both on the ground and its ill-fated attempt at nation building, why do you think there was no significant shift in strategy? It's a great question. I mean, I think we need to be honest that uh, the Congress bears a, a significant responsibility here. Some of these members of Congress have been around a long time, frankly, and, and they should know better than to believe what they hear from uh, military officials and, and others who have been shown to lie uh, repeatedly in some of these instances. You know, uh, the name the Washington Post used, the, the Afghan papers, harkens back to the Pentagon papers for a reason. This is a complete historical echo to what happened in, in, in that time period during the Vietnam War. Not very many members of Congress are left who were there from part of that. But certainly a lot of members of Congress were here who understood that they were lied to throughout the Iraq war, that the the kind of, you know, we've got the insurgency on the run, the, the last throes of, of Dick Cheney and others, these lies persist and they're and they're constant. And Congress bears responsibility, not because they don't know that it's happening, but frankly, because they lack the political will. They have complete moral cowardice when it comes to confronting these things. It's easier for them to perpetuate the status quo. It's easier for them to do what they did less than a week after the Afghan papers came out, which is give tens of billions of dollars right back to the people prosecuting this war, support thousands of U.S. troops in this war, do nothing to address or change policy in any way. It's easy for them to push that on the status quo. Uh, and it's harder for them to do the thing that's right, to stand up, take responsibility, Responsibility. And I think I think we have to be honest that a lot of that blame lies with Congress. On that note, I mean, what what would you say to to members of Congress? Many critics believe lawmakers have largely abdicated their responsibility by failing to repeal the AUMF um, and debate the merits of this and other wars. You just mentioned part of this, but you know, are they also to blame? I think Congress needs to do its job. I think it's that simple. I mean, there are members of Congress right now who were in elementary school when the 2001 AUMF was voted on. There are men and women fighting in Afghanistan right now who were not born when Congress voted on this war. It is unconscionable that they have not done their job. And, you know, I think we need to be clear and we need to call this out for what it is. If members of Congress are too afraid to vote on this war, then they have no business sending other people to fight and die in this war. It is a complete abdication of moral responsibility. It's a complete abdication of power. The good news is they can fix it. It's pretty easy. Nothing's standing in their way. No one can blame Mitch McConnell. No one can blame Donald Trump. All they have to do is begin to do the basic job of oversight. Now, we should be honest, we have a role to play here too. Too many Americans forget have forgotten about this war. Too many Americans have allowed this to go on in perpetuity without demanding that it stop. You know, we know from public opinion polling for years and years and years that this war is unpopular. The American public wants it to end. They want it to be over. It's why you see Donald Trump rushing to try to bring more troops home before the election. People want this war to stop. We need to make our voices heard. We need to make our power felt. And we need to not just wait for Congress to do its job. We need to demand that they do it.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, just introducing the story. On the media, dove deeper, speaking with Craig Whitlock, the journalist responsible for the story. The Real News discussed the total lack of accountability. The Brian Lehrer Show discussed more of the total incompetence and lies revealed by the papers. The Michael Brooks Show gave a bit of a historical view on the Afghanistan reporting. Eyes Left discussed the effect of the war in Afghanistan on the more broad anti-war movement of the Bush era. And finally, we just heard Newsbeat looking at the disillusion that stems from government lies about war and the need for a movement demanding that the war come to an end. Members will be hearing more about the true cost of the war. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more regular voicemails and commentaries from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash left. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Sarah Saunders from Cool, California, again, and I listened to your show today on the history of socialism in the United States. It was a great show. I did not realize I was a socialist for most of my life. I just thought that for some bizarre reason, I didn't adapt well to the world because I didn't believe that anything that was actually happening was in my mind like air quotes real (laughs) and you know it all seemed just horrifying and you know not at all logical and so I came to that realization late in life I'm 62 right now and I think I've realized I'm a socialist for about maybe four years (laughs) since Bernie but I knew about Bernie Sanders for a long time before that and I admired him and I thought that you know he was also a person who obviously didn't believe the world was working the way it was. Um, The interesting thing about socialism in my mind is that most people agree with most of, of what we would think of as the tenets of socialism. They just don't have the right idea of it. We've gone through a lot of changes at work this past four years. And um, I have several conservative workmates who have been shocked and dismayed to realize that they have no control over their jobs. We work uh, as RNs, and and the ones that I'm uh, most familiar with, the RNs I'm most familiar with and close to work in an office. We do quality management reviews. And so we have always lived kind of a cushy life there. And then lately, then, you know, in the last few years, it's come down on us. One of my coworkers recently was very upset because the employer was making everyone get a flu shot this year. And she believed firmly that the employer could not do that. And we all did. We were like, oh, that's an invasion of your body. That's an invasive procedure. They can't make you do it. There's no law that says they have to. It's different than a TV test, you know, blah, blah, blah. She did some research and she found out, yeah, Any employer can make anything like that, you know, a prerequisite for staying in their employ. And she was outraged. So, you know, I think regular people, when they realize that socialism is really just trying to give you control over your own work life, and it's trying to make things more equitable and prevent situations like Jeff Bezos and Amazon from happening, 
and that they it recognizes every human being as a human being. I, you know, I think they that they agree with those things. And I've had an amazing amount of success talking to people about socialist ideas without saying that's what they are. Just putting the seed in their head. I guess that's agitation, you know, but just saying, geez, wouldn't it be great if we ran our own workplace? We could do this better than the managers. Do you think we really need a manager? You know, and we actually went without a manager for about three years. And we all agreed we were doing much better without them. So that's my opinion about, you know, the whole thing. And I really appreciate your show, as always. And I um, I always learn a lot when I listen to it. And I'm proud to be a supporter. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. This is Pat from Chicago. After watching the Democratic debate last night and seeing uh, all white candidates on stage, it led me to think back about the episode and the discussions that followed the Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris uh, candidate profiles and how you analyzed your own criteria for a candidate as placing policy above identity, if I remember correctly. And while I can understand your reasoning behind that analysis and that approach, I think, especially as white voters, even just saying that we look at policy first is still problematic because there's no way to know that our institutionally racist society is not still influencing us to prefer the policies of white candidates over the policies of candidates of color or female candidates, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're at the point with only white candidates left on that debate stage where, yeah, we might have some candidates who have some uh, appealing policies from a progressive perspective, but we also have a field that is reflecting the institutional racism in our country. So I don't know how we escape this a vicious cycle of, of racism and the conundrum that it puts us in. But I do think going back to that discussion about the balance of policy and identity, we have to find a way to create a system that promotes diversity of identity over, or at least alongside, I should say, the policies that we favor. So not a very constructive solution here, but hopefully something that we can continue to discuss as a community and continue to wrestle with. Thanks a lot very much and uh, keep up the good work. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in response to Pat, who we just heard from, I think he brings up an excellent 
question slash concern, and it encouraged me to think about this whole issue a little bit more and and come to what I think is a clarifying conclusion. So he, he sort of laid the groundwork a little bit. I'll add just a bit more you know, in, in the wake, as he said, of uh, the episode I did on Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. It sparked a conversation about the importance of identity in political candidates. And I wholeheartedly agree with the premise that identity is important. Having our first black president was important. We currently have our first native members of Congress. That is important. When we have our first female president, that will be important. And there's a whole variety of reasons for it. It's not just for representation and, you know, showing members of those identity groups, you know, someone who they can identify with in a position of power, like that is important, but also just having a diversity of perspectives, holding power simultaneously creates the sort of conversations and, and helps break out of the sort of group think that leads to usually worse decision making. So having a diversity of opinion in power is helpful for a whole variety of reasons. And but we're not going to try to dive into all of them right now um, because that's not quite the point. The point that Pat brings up is, okay, but you know, Jay, you concluded that uh, policy is more important than identity. And that's true. I did. And I, I still stand by that. And the reason is because, you know, you can, you can demonstrate the truth of this by just looking at a few extreme examples. If you want generally progressive policies to pass, you can find plenty of women who are extremely conservative and if elected would not pass progressive policies. So, you know, if you're a feminist who wants to see, you know, women in power, there are plenty of women who you would not want to vote for. That's pretty self-explanatory. Same with people of color, you know, black people aren't uh, homogenous as a group by any stretch, but they are generally on the left side of the spectrum. They are generally progressive. And there are, you know, a handful of very conservative people of color who, hey, if you want your policies passed, you wouldn't want that person in. So clearly policy trumps identity. But what Pat brings up is the concern of the blind spot, the privileged blind spot that someone like me, straight white guy, I don't know what I don't know. I, I just made a big point out of this in the retrospective episode at the very end, where I looked back at some of the things I said 10 years ago and pointed out how it demonstrated how blind I was to issues of race and gender only 10 years ago and, and how I have evolved quite a bit over the, you know the last decade. So the question is then, okay, so if, if, you want to value policy over identity. How do you know that your policies are right when what we know for sure is that people with generally privileged identities end up having blind spots and your perspective can be influenced by the structures of oppression that you are trying to fight against, but you don't know all the elements. You don't know how to fight against it. And so one of the easiest things to do would be to allow someone else to lead 
allow a woman to lead, allow a person of color to lead, because they're going to know more about those issues than you are. And I, I agree. So um, I think that I sort of thought this through and figured out the problem that we're having in, in this conversation. We're trying to squish multiple issues into this one topic of electoral politics, you know, actual elections, actual candidates, their actual identities and their actual policies and try to squish them all together and then figure out, okay, but how do we measure policy versus identity? And, you know, now we have a slate of democratic politicians who are all white and that's reproducing white supremacy, structurally speaking. And, you know, this is true, but I think we can clarify the problem we're having by splitting things up just a little bit. So I, I already explained in, in a way that I think is just irrefutable why policy needs to trump identity. But Pat's concern about like, yeah, but how do you know your policy is the right one, knowing the types of blind spots we're going to inevitably have? That's a wonderful, wonderful concern and a very good thing to bring up and point out and sort of warn people about. But the time to address that concern isn't during election time with specific candidates who you are talking about and then deciding, wait, do I just need to trust this politician who is a woman or a person of color because they're going to know their issues better than me. Therefore, I need to sort of take my own opinion and put it in the backseat and trust them to know better. That general concept may be on point, but your timing is off. The time to deal with that is long before election time, and it's all the time. The ideas we have, the policies we support should be ever evolving. We should constantly be learning new things and refining our way of thinking over time. And the best way to do that is to get a variety of perspectives, making sure to lift up or prioritize the perspectives of people who are most directly affected by any given issue, prioritize the voices of those who are most marginalized and who are outside the mainstream, who aren't given voice. That's how you fight against that sort of structural bias. Depending on a politician to do that for you, maybe well-meaning that it's, it's a way of overcoming your blind spots, but it's not the best way to do it. And, and I mean, it's sort of the, the, you know, the easy way out. What we need to be doing is constantly challenging our own blind spots all the time on any given issue we should be looking to those who are most impacted and whose you know voices are rarely heard to get the the broadest uh, you know diversity of opinions we can you, you know you, you don't have to give up your own independent thought you don't have to hand over your thought to someone else but you need to make sure that your way of thinking is challenged regularly so that when you come across new and better ways of thinking, you can incorporate that. So, you know, you can be in, in, in favor of feminism and, and the fight for women's liberation, and then you can come across black feminists who will point out major blind spots that white feminists have 
and how they don't incorporate racism into their vision of the fight for women's rights. And so then you learn that and can begin to incorporate new ways of thinking and, and understand the importance of intersectionality. Or, you know, you can think about uh, reproductive rights and then learn from the reproductive justice movement founded by women of color that we need to think beyond just the legalization of abortion because we need economic justice to be paired with reproductive justice. You know, we, we need to think beyond the pregnancy to childcare so that parents will have the freedom to work and care for their family. And we need to think about the, the, the built environment that we have so that kids have places to play and be healthy. We need to think about a more progressive economic structure, but recognize that what we need is economic justice, which incorporates racism into our thinking about economics, because we can look back historically at the, you know, the New Deal era and how they were very progressive for their time, but they very specifically cut out people of color from those systems that were trying to, you know, help lift people up. And it actually made the wealth divide worse because white people were helped at the same time as people of color weren't. So being open to those sorts of ways of thinking, constantly uh, seeking out different ways of thinking so that you can you know, be exposed to that and, and evolve your, your thought process consistently over time is the best way to make sure that the policies that you believe in don't have blind spots, that they incorporate the concerns, the opinions of people far outside, you know, the, the scope of, of, you know, your own personal identity and, and experience and, and make sure that what you are signing up for or what you are endorsing is going to be helpful to people you know far beyond you and that it's not being strongly objected to by people who are your allies but are coming at the issue from a very different perspective than you are so hopefully that brings a little bit of clarity and, and you know just to sum up I, I think that being wary of your own blind spots is an incredibly healthy thing but what i would say is to uh, to deal with your blind spots, focus less on the identity of your politicians and more on the identity of your news presenters. And I, you know, I, I get a little bit of irony of me saying that, but that is definitely something that I try to do. I try to have my perspective shaped by an incredibly wide variety of presenters. And I do my best, you know, not always to perfection, but I do my best to share that with the audience of this show and to present a diverse group of people giving their opinions on any given topic. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this 
and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Now I'm just a farmer from Arkansas. There's a lot of things I don't understand. Like why we sent farmers to kill farmers in Afghanistan. Now I did what I was told for my love of this land. And I come home a shattered man with blood on my hand. And now I can't have a relationship. I can't hold down a job. Oh, when some may say I'm broken, well, I can't. Even